welcome to Back Talk, the show about this week in feminism and pop culture. This show is a conversation between two feminist people. That would be me, Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor of Bitch Media, which means that this week uh, I've been taking some elaborate Instagram photos of feminist sci-fi books. There's only so many ways to photograph a book, and I am trying to do something fun with them. It's not really working. But you'll see some weird photos of sci-fi books on our Instagram. You follow us there. That's what I've been doing this week. And I'm Amy Lim, the associate editor. And I am joining you from sunny Fremont, California through Skype. Yay. Yes. Through the You're on magic. a road trip. <laughs> yeah. So much road. Uh, thanks for interrupting your road trip just to talk to us. Oh, no problems. So uh, on this show, we talk about two big issues in pop culture this week. Um, this week, uh, we're first we're talking about the VMAs, and then we're talking about IUDs, two very exciting acronyms. Uh, but we start off the show uh, by sharing our favorite moment in pop culture this week. Amy, you want to go for it? So I save up a lot of podcasts for us to listen to on the drive, and um, I don't listen to This American Life as it's coming out because... My partner and I both like it, and it's the one podcast that we can agree on to listen to. And I just listened to this amazing episode from about a month ago uh, called The Problem We All Live With. And it's about reforming education so that kids from low-income communities of color, uh, particularly schools with black majority students, could receive like an equitable education. And in essence, the episode is about how school segregation still exists in 2015. And um, while white schools thrive, black students are left behind. And it's such an interesting episode because it talks about how, like, the thing that can really work to pull up um, black students in poor communities is desegregation, is to have them attend schools, white schools that have good resources and good teachers and like a like a good foundation and they can also receive an equitable education that seems to be like the only thing that's working at this time it was such an enlightening listening and it's only about an hour long um and there's a second part of it that has to do with like um when segregate desegregation works when people want it um and i'm gonna listen to that on our next leg of the trip when we're driving to la i also just listened to that podcast on a really long trip uh like an hours long drive and i loved it it was so interesting it was really captivating and it was really cool to be able to sit down and just focus on it listen to it the whole way through yeah so listen to that well my favorite pop culture moment of the week is also involves traveling um i went up to orcas island in washington for my birthday last weekend orcas island i think it's a place where tourists go to feel more peaceful but uh i personally came away just feeling more insignificant <laughs> because <laughs> Orcas is a place where there's, you know, trees that are older than I am and are going to be around long after I'm dead. And, you know, there's like these ceaseless waves and really beautiful islands and you just feel so small. And it's it's really good, but it's also I'm like, wow, my life is such a I'm a tiny drop in the world. And I was reading I bought this uh, Joan Didion book to read. Uh, her, it's a sort of a personal history of California called uh, Where I'm From. And in that book, she talks about Californians facing the grandeur of nature. There's a really good quote in there about somebody visiting Yosemite National Park, which if you've ever been there, it's just mind-blowingly beautiful with rock faces and waterfalls and trees. And their quote was that looking at Yosemite, they felt like a worm. And so that's how I was feeling all weekend long was 
I am a worm on this beautiful world. It's so amazing when you actually get out and look at the world, how it, make, it may make you feel small, but it makes you feel like you're part of something greater than like looking, staring at your phone or like right. checking yeah. Facebook updates. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think if you want to feel like a significant, important human whose life is really big, never go into nature. Instead, stay in your house and in your house, you will feel very big. <laughs> All right, so we're starting off the show talking about the VMAs, MTV's Video Music Awards were this past weekend, and it was a huge media spectacle. Amy, can you tell us what happened and what your take is? Yes, let me give you the big old lowdown. So what happened was a couple months ago when the nominees for Video of the Year came out, um, Nicki Minaj felt snubbed because she wasn't included in the nominees for her video Anaconda, um, and it wasn't nominated. And like, regardless of how you feel about Nicki Minaj's Anaconda, you have to, like, recognize that it it was a big video in itself. It broke a record for most views in a day. Well, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big deal. A lot of people watched it, and it had a huge cultural impact. Um, and so when she wasn't nominated for Video of the Year, um, she tweeted some things where she was, you know, it was a critique of, um, of the industry and of culture, and she had had tweeted that like if she were quote a different kind of artist she would have been nominated and so when Nicki Minaj did this she was like calling out like an industry that's racist and that capitalizes on black culture and music without actually rewarding black artists like a big huge example of this is the year where uh, Macklemore won best hip-hop record like over Kendrick Lamar which is absolutely insane so Uh, yeah that that was for was that for his song same love it was for his, I think it was for a record of the, like the uh, album oh, okay. year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so when, when Nicki Minaj tweeted this, it wasn't like directed in anybody in particular, but Taylor Swift, who was one of the uh, VMA video of year nominees, um, decided to jump in and take it personally and responded to Nicki as if Nicki was talking to her specifically. And it was like a really clueless move on Taylor's part to make it about her. And you know, Taylor Swift, like, recognized that later and was like, hey, this isn't actually about me. Um, I need to, like, reel it in. <laughs> and so that was, like, resolved. And actually, at the beginning of the VMAs, they did a performance together as, you know, as if to show, like, these two pop stars um, and their reconciliation. But before the VMAs, Miley Cyrus, who was the host this year, uh, did an interview with New York Times. And um, so the reporter asked her about, you know, Nicki Minaj's comments. And, and Miley basically minimized, like, Nikki's critique of the industry and culture at large. And she criticized Nikki for being, for basically saying that Nikki may be, may be jealous or like angry or, you know, just like completely dismissing Nikki Minaj's like bigger critique and ignoring the larger issues at hand. So then on the night of the VMAs, um, Miley Cyrus was just full of problems. Like she had these like faux dreads in her hair. Um, she had she did these like really unfunny skits, and then one of them, um, Snoop Dogg is in it with her, and she actually calls Snoop Dogg her mammy, um, which has awful racist historical implications. And then um, there was the moment where uh, one of the first awards that was given, maybe it was the first award that was given, was for best hip hop video, and Nicki Minaj won. And so she goes up on stage during her acceptance speech. She She's, you know, really calm and everything. And then towards the end, she calls out Miley Cyrus. And it was, like, such an incredible, like, moment for people to watch at home because she's angry. And she calls out Miley Cyrus for what she said or said about her to the press. Back to this 
that had a lot to say about me the other day in the press. Miley, what's good? Hey, we're all in this industry. We all do interviews and we all know how they manipulate Nikki, congratulations. And, uh, just and instead of like VMA... owning up that like she made a mistake and she spoke out of turn when she criticized Nicki Minaj and her comments, she just kind of was like, you know, brushed it off and like, it's no big deal. Like, why are you getting, you know, your panties in a bunch kind of issue? And it was just weird and like d uncomfortable to watch. But also it was empowering to watch Nicki Minaj like get in the, and like um, sort of get into Miley's face and be like, why are you saying these things? Like, like here I am, say it to my face. You think that I was like being rude. And the thing about Miley is that like he, she herself has a history of appro appropriation for using black women as props in her videos. And she's, she's been unapologetic about it. And like, while this might seem like just sort of like, uh, like pop star drama, but it does speak a lot to like real life situations where of like white obliviousness and privilege and white supremacy in general, where like a black artist needs to justify her art. Um, and when she does, she gets labeled as like jealous or, um, or, you know, angry when she has to watch white artists receive accolades for capitalizing on black culture. So that was just like a really intense exchange that like speaks a lot about culture at large and not just between like quote like infighting between pop stars or something yeah i think a lot of people who don't really follow taylor swift miley cyrus Nicki minaj top pop star news might be kind of confused about why there was such a big backlash to this like why people were talking about what happened at the vmas so much um and a lot of it has to do with the history here and sort of these little back and forths in the context of the larger sort of race and uh, gender dynamics of the music industry, as well as these artists' particular histories. And so, yeah, there's just sort of like some barbs going back and forth here. And definitely a lot of media is playing it up as like, Nicki Minaj is starting cat fights. Like, can you, she's feuding with Taylor Swift, which that just grosses me out. But what, what Nicki sort of really is pointing out that I think is really culturally relevant is that Miley Cyrus has a history here of cultural appropriation. That in a couple of her videos and uh, she, and a couple of her songs, she's very outspokenly been like, I want to try and, and emulate black culture. I want to be a part of black culture, which you can see sort of most prominently in uh, her like twerking trend. Yes. I mean, and, and she just seems like so oblivious to it and, and she's unapologetic about it. She's just like, this is just how I am. This is what I do. Um, and there's like a, so there was lots of like pieces written about this, but one of my favorites is by this Emily, uh, writer named Emily Yoshida on the verge. And the piece is called Miley Cyrus just torpedoed her, her own career and MTV helps. Um, so here's a line that I really liked. Um, it says, Quote, she looked like the rich girl whose birthday party everyone's parents forced them to go to if that girl was also wearing white dreadlocks while defending herself from being implicated in systemic pop cultural racism. Oh, snap. Yes. I mean, this this piece has a, so, like a handful of like media amazing lines. Uh, and actually, well, so that's and that totally points it out where it's like, OK, so my, my Cyrus is wearing white dreads. Who cares about her hair? Like, is this just part of red carpet gossip? But, like, the fact that she's wearing dreadlocks it sort of is important within the context of her history of doing a bunch of stuff to try and, like, be cool and look like a black person, even though she's white and profit off that culture, uh, while at the same time shutting down black artists.
Right. And another piece about, um, I think, Miley Cyrus's like work outside of being an artist is that she has like a nonprofit foundation called Happy Hippies. And um, the mission is... It's called Happy Hippies? Yes, Happy Hippies. <laughs> Such a bad name. Yeah, she, she calls herself a, a hippie because she smokes weed and she's white. So that's what I think is going on. Um, but so she, the mission of this organization is to help young people to fight injustice facing homeless youth, LGBT youth, and other vulnerable populations. So like that's great and all, but if your work and especially in terms of like fighting for LGBTQ youth um, is not intersectional and does not recognize that you have a uh, white privilege or that you're operating within a system of white supremacy, then you're, you know, like you're not really on board to doing real activist work. You can't do this work in like a silo uh, while not recognizing that like certain other people face disproportionate um, discrimination or systemic uh, abuses. So it, it's just, it makes my mind blow up. I, I feel like every time we talk about stuff, I, I always end my rants with being like, my, my mind is melting. Yeah, you do say that a lot. <laughs> You're like, and then my brain exploded because Miley Cyrus was clueless. Yes. So, I mean, this is just something that I can see people being like, this is not a big deal. This is just like a pop star incident. But it isn't because it speaks a lot to larger culture and uh, what we think about and how we feel about when marginalized people speak up about who they are and, and the work that they do. All right, next up, we're going to talk about our favorite reproductive rights topic on the show, IUDs. Yes. Yay, IUDs. <laughs> I wonder if I will ever stop being an IUD evangelist. I don't think so. No, their, their efficacy itself is amazing. It's so good. Okay, so a few months ago on the show, we talked about this really innovative and inspiring program that was happening in Colorado, where um, Colorado was looking to reduce teen birth rates, like every state in the country is. And so they funded a program to give free long-term birth control, that's an IUD or hormonal implant, to any person who wanted it, uh, specifically young people who couldn't afford it. And this had the dramatic result of reducing uh, teen pregnancies in Colorado by 40%. That's astounding. So what happened next? Well, the Republican legislature in Colorado cut the program and said, we don't need this. And so now the people who are sort of um, working on this, this really innovative, effective program are like, what the hell? We need to keep funding birth control for young people who want it. So now they're scrambling around trying to raise, I think, $5 million to keep funding the program for the next year. Um, and they found they've got a donation from their, so, so they have to get private funding for it because the public funding won't cover it. So just this month, last week, they got a pledge of $2 million to help cover that Colorado IUD program. Um, I'm rooting for them. <laughs> but but this whole story sort of speaks to how IUDs are becoming much more mainstream in the United States, where uh, we don't have a long history with IUDs here, although they're super prevalent in other countries, especially in Europe. But for a long time in the United States, they've been on the outs. So what was the reasoning behind the GOP for cutting funding for this? Well, so Colorado is pretty divided between sort of progressive groups and a really right-wing Republican groups. Like Colorado, while I think of it as like ski country and beer brewing country and bicycling country, is also the headquarters of Focus on the Family and a lot of really virulent sort of anti-sex and anti-LGBT um, organizations. So the right-wing Republicans sort of balked at the idea of using public funds to cover the cost of birth control, and they suggested that it amounts to, and I'm quoting, subsidizing teenagers' sex lives, 
Um, some opponents also said that um, IUDs cause abortions, which isn't true. But uh, they thought that they shouldn't be paid for with public money because they cause abortions, which they don't. So that's a little hard to argue against <laughs> when you're like, yeah. your science is wrong and uh, teenagers are going to be having sex anyway. Do you want them to get pregnant or not? Those are the options that we have. It's just, I mean, it's unsurprising, but like the GOP has a history of not doing any real work in terms of reproductive health and reproductive justice. Um, but to like to always continue to frame this as an issue of like, oh, we're just like encouraging teens to have sex. It just, it that does, it, historically that doesn't work. And that's not true. And I don't understand why they don't get their head out of their asses. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and this program was particularly interesting because it was focused on long-term birth control. So, um, so getting IUDs to teenagers is super important because then they don't have to worry about taking a birth control pill every day for like the next 10 years of their lives. And there was another, there was a really interesting study that came out this year. Um, it was published in Women's Health Issues Journal. And it was about sort of the per public perception of IUDs among teenagers. And what this study found, it's called bringing patients' social context into the examination room. If you're the kind of nerd who likes to look up medical journals, that's what it's called. Um, they found that uh, that teens were coming into doctor's offices with sort of really a negative view of IUDs, that the public conversation about IUDs, if they had heard of them, they were twice as likely to have heard about terrible side effects, um, adverse reactions, a lot of fear around IUDs. They were twice as likely to hear the sort of the fearful stuff than anything positive about IUDs. And so this program in Colorado was, I think, really great and boundary pushing in terms of changing the conversation and saying, IUDs are super effective. They're the best form of birth control for a lot of people. Um, and the risks of side effects are are super low. I mean, there are side effects as there are with all forms of birth control. But it's not any worse with an IUD than it is with other birth control. And so but so I think it's it's helpful to have programs like this which really change our conception of what IUDs are, who can use them, and um, if there's something that's really scary or not. It's the end of the show, and on the end of the show, we talk about one thing we saw, one thing we read, and one thing we heard this week. Amy, let's kick it off. Yeah, so I want to talk about um, this web series called The Hey Yun, and that's spelled H-E-Y, as in hey there, <laughs> and yun, as in it rhymes with fun, but with the Y. Um, it is a web series by um, an artist named Hey Yun Park, and her name is actually spelled a little differently. But uh, Hey Yun Park is... She herself as a person, she's like, she's really smart and funny, and she made this web series that's based on her life, but not not uh, completely autobiographical. Um, she's a Korean wo American woman, and it's basically a web series about being a struggling artist in New York City, and it's just it's really funny and um, raw and real and really interesting and fun and and I've never seen I really have not seen portrayals of like Asian American women in media in this way and one of my favorite episodes of this web series is the sisters episode where um, this woman I believe her name is Angela O oh, plays her sister and they're just sitting on uh, Hey Yun's bed and talking and it's just like it's an emotional roller coaster within nine minutes but it's it's just such a sincere and genuine depiction of how we can interact with each other um, that I've never seen. And it's so refreshing. And I think that anybody who's interested in web series or want to see something that's like funny and smart should definitely check out Hey Yun. 
Yeah, there's a million web series out there, so I'm always glad to have you tell me which ones are cool. Right, and actually, I did an interview with Heian um, on bitchmedia.org, and you can find it. Yeah, it's a really good interview. Go look it up. Um, okay, this week, I want to talk about a comic that I read. Um, I read the second volume of a comic called Rat Queens, which comes out of Image Comics. Uh, this is a comic about four women who are like warriors, sort of a fighting gang, um, in sort of a medieval-ish magical society. But it's super sassy and funny and sexy and crude. Um, I read the first volume a little while ago, and people love this comic. I mean, when you ask, like, I, I post on Facebook sometimes and ask bitch readers what comics they're reading, and, like, the overwhelming response is, I love Rat Queens! Read more Rat Queens! So I read the first volume a little while ago, and I just didn't like it. Like, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like, it was trying too hard to be funny. Um, and it was just sort of like, we have these badass women, and they fight, and that makes it cool, which... I don't really like that idea. Um, but I read the second volume because everyone kept talking about it and I like it a lot more. And there's like some really funny, intimate moments with them. And I think the characters have really evolved and come into their own so that they're less like, here's this badass woman stereotype and this badass woman stereotype and this badass woman stereotype and more like real characters who I could root for and think about. So uh, I guess I'm on board with Rat Queens now. Awesome. Uh, so to close out the show, I want to talk about this record that was actually reviewed in our upcoming issue of Bitch. It is the Blood and Guts issue. And our reviewer, Jordana Elizabeth, um, reviewed a record called A Thoughtiverse Unmarred. A, thought a Thoughtiverse? Yes. Like, unmarred? Like, unmarred. Yeah, like universe, but with thought. Unmarred. A Thoughtiverse. Yeah. By, a universe, uh, like a universe of thoughts? I guess. <laughs> Um, by the hip-hop artist Georgia Ann Moudreau. And um, Jordana says that this record is a, quote, concept album that tells the story of a mother, presumably Georgia Ann herself, struggling with the degradation of her culture as she scrambles to connect with her past. And she says that, um, like, the record is a, is a really great art piece and is a strong, moving, sensitive, and authentic and it's it's like it sounds like a really smooth like for me it's from the couple tracks I listen to like just old school hip hop, um, and I wanted to play us out with this track called Great Blacks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Have fun in California, Amy. Yes, I can't wait to come back to see all you lovely faces. <laughs> I'ma be fine, finely designed. My heart do the beating, but the blood ain't mine. My sense of time's intertwined deep with the great blacks. Thanks for listening to Back Talk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. From being ignorant and gifted, suicidal and explicit to